Well, good morning, church. Have a seat. You're already doing that? Very good. Nice job. Uh, We are going to be in Matthew chapter 1 again today. If you take your Bibles open, we're going to pick up where our brother left off last week in verse 18, and we're going to be reading through verse 25. If you're borrowing a Bible from the pew in front of you, we're going to be on page 807, bottom left-hand corner of the page. And while you're turning there, I will just make a uh, Psalm 19 public service announcement. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims the work of his hands. We are in the middle of a meteor shower, if you didn't know that or not. Uh, So if uh, we get some clear skies tonight up until Christmas Eve, go out and take a gander at what the Lord is doing in the skies at night. That was free. It has nothing to do with the sermon, but it's really, really cool. All right. Let's read uh, from the word of our Lord, beginning uh, chapter 1, the Gospel of Matthew, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. On April 26, 1986, uh, most of us probably this room are alive, I was about to turn two years old, but there was a test of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant facility. They were testing the steam turbine engines for any engineers in the room. Uh, But something went horribly wrong. You see, when they were testing, the test was to see what would happen if the power plant lost a power supply, and in the middle of the test, it actually did. What happened was an inability for the reactor to cool itself, and there was a meltdown and a fire that lasted nine days. Radiation levels around the site Sword and the site was evacuated, and they quickly set up a safe distance of about 10 kilometers or 6.2 miles. It became very evident very quickly that this distance was not near safe enough, and they eventually made the exclusion zone, the safe zone, about 1,000 square miles, so think about 100 miles by 100 miles around the site. The death counts over the decades continued to climb. We still don't know possibly how many died as a result of this mishap. But today, the area is still uninhabitable. You can't live there, even if you wanted to. And experts are saying that human life probably won't be able to exist there for at least 300 years, possibly 20,000 years. Maybe this is the first time that you've heard a Christmas sermon kick off with radiation poisoning, and I would just... uh, Encourage you to keep listening. You may hear a few firsts this morning. Radiation exposure is is one of the most dangerous exposures that we as humans 
can experience. In fact, we're talking about Psalm 19, God in his uh, creation gave this planet an electromagnetic field that protects us from deadly levels of cosmic radiation every single day. Without that electromagnetic field, life on our planet would be impossible. But I say it's one of the most dangerous exposures we as humans can face because the scripture reveals that there's an even more dangerous, in fact, a most dangerous presence that we can come in contact with. I believe if we uh, were to ask certain Bible characters, uh, give them the story of Chernobyl and ask them what they think about it, they would probably scoff at its effects. I just imagine maybe we have like Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah up here and we tell them the story and I doubt we would get uh, very much sympathy from them. See, each one of these men brought their unclean presence into the presence of a holy God. And that presence was enough to kill them immediately for their carelessness. If we were to actually just consider what we're talking about this morning, humans have no business being in the presence of God. He is perfect. He is holy. He is set apart in everything that he does and everything that he is. And we are filthy. We are unrighteous. We are unclean. And in his presence, we should not be able to survive. Our passage today, we've been praying about it, singing about it. It promises, it promises us that God with us is coming. And seeing that humans dwelling in the presence of God seems to have a high mortality rate, maybe we should stop and ask ourselves, is this a good thing for us or not? Is this really what we want? See, it's very easy to get caught up this time of year uh, with the Christmas festivities. We maybe just read the stories of the Bible, and, and they're amazing stories. They're very interesting. Um, maybe we just we kind of keep it at that surface level. We sing songs. They're familiar. Maybe there's nostalgia that sets in. And, of course, we have the cultural distractions that can come with this time. But I think it would be uh, very unfortunate to us if we miss one of the most important things that happens in the birth of Christ in this coming of Emmanuel, this God with us to come here as our brother Dan prayed this morning as a human baby. I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and answer the question for you. God with us turns out to be a very good thing for us. But it's not because that we have become any more less unclean. It's because that in the birth of Jesus Christ, God sends his perfected presence as the perfect way to save his people from sin. It's our sin that separates us from God. It's our sin that makes his presence dangerous, but God sends his perfected presence as the perfect way to save his people from sin. We see this in our passage this morning in three ways, I believe. The first thing that we see is that God establishes the perfect means of his presence, the perfect means of his presence. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Matthew is telling us here that the story is part of a particular way, lest his readers think that Christ's birth was happenstance or luck or it just kind of seemed to flow in, a, in, a, in some kind of random progression, Matthew's telling us it's intentional. Perhaps if we were to choose how these things would come about, 
we would choose different approaches, maybe different circumstances than we see here in our story. But then again, we're not very good with ways and means uh, as humans. In fact, our House of Representatives here in our country has a committee uh, called the Ways and Means Committee that per their own website has the responsibility for raising the revenue required to finance the federal government. That's what they're supposed to do. So I guess when we step back and think about this, maybe we should reconsider how good we are at ways and means, seeing that as of this morning, we are $33.84 trillion in debt. It doesn't seem like our ways and means from our House of Representatives are doing that great a job. But it's not all on them. We, we don't uh, plan things or we don't actually execute things nearly as well as God can because he's sovereign, because he is perfect. We read on. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the timing of all these things. We have Mary. She's betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal in this time, if you're unfamiliar, is, is about a year-long process by which a man and a woman were committed to each other for a future marriage, and they likely had very few, if any, interactions with one another during that year. However, they were considered essentially married legally. We see in verse 19 that uh, Joseph is identified as Mary's husband. This meant that chastity and purity was expected from the two parties involved. In fact, there were stricter penalties for uh, extramarital relations in Deuteronomy of a virgin that was betrothed as to opposed to a virgin that was not betrothed. Before they came together, this is not hard to figure out. This is the Bible's way of saying that the marriage had not yet been consummated. Mary and Joseph had remained faithful to the biblical command. As at this point, we get introduced to a new actor in our story. Not actor as in uh, like a play or a movie, but somebody else who is acting. We see that Mary is found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know if this interaction between, that's about to occur between Joseph and the angel comes before or after Mary's interaction with Gabriel and Luke, but what we do know is Joseph is convinced that his wife has been unfaithful. He makes plans to divorce her, but the Lord sends an angel to explain to Joseph that Mary's baby is not the result of infidelity, but is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Angel tells him to take Mary home and make her his wife. So we have this period where the, the two are essentially married, yet they had not come together. So let's ask the question again, why this timing? Why couldn't it have happened before the betrothal, before they're married legally? Or why couldn't it have happened after the marriage had been consummated? The timing seems very odd. Well, our passage shows how God's ways and means are perfect. The angel addresses Joseph as son of David. The same identifier was given to Jesus in the genealogy that our brother faithfully preached last week. It's also going to be used to reference Jesus throughout the Gospels. And there was little debate amongst the religious leaders at this time that the Messiah was going to come from David's line. We read about it in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. The Old Testament has many witnesses to this end. 
in waiting for Mary and Joseph's betrothal period, God ensures the means for the Messiah to be born into David's lineage, establishing him as the covenant king that David or that God, this covenant God made with Daniel in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and that we see is again talked about in Isaiah 9. In all legalities, Joseph and Mary are married, and Joseph's road to adopting Jesus as his own, becoming part of his line, is now seamless. The timing is perfect. The means are perfect. There's another way. We have ancient creeds that we read and that we study, and they correctly teach that Jesus, uh, the Christ, is one person, but he has two natures. He has a human nature and a divine nature, and these natures never separate. Galatians 4 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son born of a woman. And Hebrews 2.17 goes on to say, he had, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus' human nature in the woman makes it possible for him to absorb the wrath of God that we deserve as sinners. However, this is not all that we need from this Messiah. We also need the Messiah to be free from sin. Now, you and I can classify sin in two kind of different ways, not different ways, just two separate ways. We have moral sin. This would be the sin that we would say uh, when we commit a sin or we do something wrong. We, we do this every day, perhaps every hour, perhaps every minute. Well, you know what I mean? We sin all the time. And it's our actions, this moral sin that is part of making us sinners. This is not really controversial. People can kind of agree on this. But then there's another way that you and I are sinners and that we are conceived with a corrupted sin nature. We have this federal headship, Romans 5 says, under Adam. And being descended from Adam, we inherit his sin. We don't have a choice. Psalm 51, David makes this claim, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. By the normal means of human procreation, we are doomed from the womb. The Messiah, whoever he was, whoever he was going to be, needs to be removed from both of these types of sin, both of moral sin, but more importantly, of corrupted sin, of this sin nature. The only way that we can actually reconcile this is that God would have to come himself in a person, a person like us. Our Savior needs a divine nature, and Scripture testifies that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ bodily, that he is in very nature God. The timing here is vital because in working this miracle before the consummation of the marriage, God ensures that there's never any doubt from this time or forevermore that Jesus is conceived through a virgin, by the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth is something that we can never capitulate. It's something we can never let go of because we need a Savior who is like us, but is not like us. 
We need a Savior who's like us, but not like us. Not like us in that we have sin. We have sin that we commit, and we have sin that we inherit. He needs to have neither. Jesus, being conceived by the third person of the triune God, remains clean of a corrupted sin nature. Indeed, the birth of the Christ child, we have him who knew no sin and perfectly contains the righteousness of God in himself. And this perfect means of God's presence, we see faithfulness in that he has fulfilled his covenant with David, and we see him begin to fulfill this new covenant by providing a way in which we can perfectly know him in Christ, and he can forgive our iniquity, and he can remember our sins no more. As we look to the first few verses in our passage, we should glorify our God, and we should resonate with the psalmist who declares this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all who take refuge in him. Praise God that he establishes the perfect means for his presence to be with us. Second thing our passage reveals is that God establishes the perfect names of his presence. The perfect names of his presence. Beginning again in verse 21, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Names reveal a lot about us. Of course, in most circumstances, we don't get to choose our names, not initially anyways. There's been some professional athletes in the last few decades who have become very um, creative with new names. But our names normally carry a significant meaning. Hannah and I uh, went through a very trying time in our life together. Uh, We had our first child, and we were trying for a second. And things uh, were not happening uh, the way that we wanted them to. Um, We were uh, very unsuccessful in trying to conceive our second child. We waited, we waited, and when James, our oldest, was about two years old, a little older than that, we found out Hannah was pregnant, and we rejoiced. The child we had waited for was here. We were filled with gratitude, praise to the Lord. Our happiness turned out to be short-lived. A few weeks into the pregnancy, uh, Hannah had a miscarriage. And uh, if that wasn't um, awful enough, I was deploying uh, with the Air Force for six months about a week later. We were grieved. We were brokenhearted. To make things worse, one of our best friends in the squadron, uh, she became pregnant with her second son. Uh, A short time later, Hannah's sister became pregnant with her second son. It it was a time that we should have been rejoicing with them, loving them, celebrating with them, but we found it very difficult to do that because their pregnancies reminded us of the pain that we were experiencing. Now, this time in our life and in our marriage, God did incredible things in our individual faiths, in our faiths together as husband and wife, and then in our our marriage as a whole. 
after about a, a year, a little bit later than a year after these things happened, God blessed us with another pregnancy. And that pregnancy resulted in the little boy sitting next to my wife in the back middle rows there. And we called his name Asher Samuel. Asher is the Hebrew word and the Hebrew name that uh, Jacob gives uh, son Leah gives her son, that means blessed or happy. Uh, it's from the Hebrew word ashra. If you read Psalm 1, 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. That word blessed or happy translated in some of the other translations. But we were happy. And we felt ourselves blessed by God because we had been given a second son. And then we had his middle name become Samuel because Samuel, if you remember from 1 Samuel chapter 1, is Hannah's miracle baby that the Lord gives her. If you go into Asher's room today, he has a, a picture in his room with just saw or 1 Samuel 1, 27, and it reads, For this child I have prayed. Asher's name is important to us. It means something. We named him that, so every time we said his name, we would think about how the Lord had blessed us and how happy we are to have him. The child in our passage is given two names, and we can't miss the importance of either one. It's probably best to start with the second, and the author points us to Isaiah chapter 7, and that the child will be born of a virgin, and they're going to call his name Emmanuel. Now, bear with me here for a little bit, because this Old Testament reference demands we do just a little bit of investigation. See, reading the passage in context, God sends Isaiah, the prophet, to King Ahaz, who is frightened by several nations that are aligning against him. Isaiah goes with the message that the overthrow of Israel will not come as a part of this effort that Ahaz is worried about. And he says, Ahaz, you, you can ask for a sign. You can ask for a sign from the Lord that these things are going to happen. Ahaz refuses in a false sense of piety, says, I will not put the Lord God to the test. And this is not Ahaz being righteous or pious. It's showing in context, if we were to go back and read, his own cowardice, his own desire to make his own alliances, his own rejection of the Lord's help. And even in the midst of Ahaz's rejection, God nevertheless says he's going to grant him a sign. That sign is, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The prophet goes on to say that before he, that's the child, knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. This prophecy, this, this passage in its context has a realization in the original story, in the original passage. So it, it's very prudent of us to ask the question, what is Matthew doing here? Why is he referencing Isaiah 7.14 when he's talking about the birth of this son that's going to be Mary's child? I think what seems highly unlikely is that Matthew is saying Isaiah, the only fulfillment of this prophecy that he gives in Isaiah 7, the only fulfillment of that could ever be the birth of the Messiah 700 years later. I think that's very unlikely. I think it's unlikely for a few reasons. Well, first, it, it, it places Matthew in a weird spot. It places him as an interpreter of Scripture 
in which the original context is almost completely ignored and thrown out. We would never do that here from the pulpit, so why would we expect Matthew to be doing it here? Even as Matthew is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can see some troublesome complications, implications for him doing this. So what is he doing? Is Matthew allowed to do something that no other interpreter of Scripture is allowed to do? Well, if it's not just this time, we're actually going to see in the sermons ahead, in Matthew chapter 2, he actually does this several more times. He makes, he cites Old Testament passages in which he says the same thing, the, to fulfill, or to, uh, sorry, let me find it here, because I want to get it right. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. He'll use those same words to introduce Old Testament texts that have a very specific realization in their original context. So how do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile the fact that maybe Matthew is pulling a passage that has a realization in Isaiah 7, but now applies to this event, this time with the birth of Mary's baby? I think what's important to first and foremost do is to understand what it means by the word fulfill. Because in each one of these passages, Matthew uses the word, this was to fulfill. He's not going to use that, like we saw last uh, Sunday at Sermon and Song, with Micah 5.2. When he references Micah 5.2, he simply says, for so it is written by the prophet, as in Bethlehem was going to produce the Messiah. That is purely predictive. It's not really fulfilling in the way that we're going to talk about the word here. It's saying, this is what they said, this is how it happens, and that's how it did happen. With us here, and with the passages that will happen in chapter 2, the word fulfill, actually in the Greek, has, has certain meanings, and it's very rarely used to just say a simple prediction and a simple uh, coming about of that prediction. In fact, the word is normally used to a completion to a task or a completion of some kind of pattern. We see Jesus say this when he says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Uh, I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. He says this in Matthew 5, 17. Now, we wouldn't say Jesus is claiming to be the predictive actual law and prophets, rather that he has come to complete them. He's come to fulfill them in that, as he explains and the road to Emmaus with his disciples in Luke chapter 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is talking about how he completes this law, this prophet, how he is it, how he is the finality to all of these things. If we interpret Matthew's use of Isaiah 7.14 as just a prediction, we're going to miss out on what the name Emmanuel actually means here. Ahaz was unfaithful. He was doubtful. He was rebellious. And even in the midst of his rejection of God, God gave him a sign that would show he was with them, even in the midst of the things that he feared, that it would not stand, that it would not come to pass, is what the passage says. Ahaz was only given a sign of this presence. But in Jesus, we see that God perfects the name of his presence. In Jesus, God, in the midst of our wretchedness, 
showed his love for us and that he wouldn't simply give a sign to us, but he would actually give us God with us in one who was made like us. Even though our doom is certain, God perfected this pattern shown to Ahaz as the final sign that he was in fact God with us. This brings us to the first name that is mentioned. You see, if we, when we understand this fulfillment of this pattern that there's our wretchedness and God says, I'm still coming. And it's not just a sign this time. I'm going to actually be God with us to you. We see that the beautiful name that Jesus is given is in its full and great light. It says the angel gives a command that Joseph is to name the child in Mary's womb Jesus because he's going to save people from their sin, his people from their sin. Now, the Greek uh, name Jesus is a, uh, it's, it's just a Greek rendering of the Old Testament name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. The, the covenant name of God, he is the one that saves. So we have this presence of God that is with us, God with us, even in the midst of our wretchedness. And instead of, like we see with Nadab, Abihu, and Uzzah, we see that this presence is no longer here to destroy us. It's here to save us. John, in his prologue, talks about how this comes full circle. In chapter 1 of John's Gospel, verses 12 to 13, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Believe in his name. Next verse, verse 14, is the one that we normally read at Christmas time. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says that by believing in this name, one receives Jesus and is called a child of God. This belief is perfectly realized in these two names. That the eternal God of the universe came to us in Christ and that he went to the cross to save his people from their sins. God has perfected, he's completed his salvation of mankind from sin in the two names he gives us here for the child who is to be born. This brings us to our last and final point. In the presence of, uh, in, the, in the child that's born here in Matthew chapter 1, God establishes the perfect completion of his presence, the perfect completion. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Our scene ends this morning with Joseph going from disdain for his wife in verse 19 to his obedience to the Lord's message in verse 24 in taking her home as his wife. The time of Mary's pregnancy is complete. Joseph knew her not until Jesus was born. Mary's virginity is maintained. Jesus is brought into the world in God's perfect redemptive plan and timing. We had this setting where there was initial 
conflict where there's a betrothal and then there's this appearance of infidelity, but then we have this climax where the angel appears and says, Joseph, it's not what you think. Here's the way it is, and here's why. You're gonna have, she's going to bear a son. He's going to be Emmanuel. He's going to save his people from their sins. You're going to call his name Jesus, and we see that that resolves the conflict. Joseph takes her home as his wife, and now we've got this new setting where Jesus is born. There's now a baby. Now, one of the more interesting things is that there's one more clause added after the ending to our story. Sometimes there's verses in Scripture where we look and we go, why why did the author say that? Uh, I uh, recently took a, a graduate seminar on the Gospel of Mark, and we were doing a fairly deep dive into all the passages there. And I remember we read through as a class, it was Mark 4.36 that said, And leaving the crowd, they took him, that's Jesus, with them in the boat. And then it adds, it adds just as he was. And I remember, I, I, you know, you raise your hand on the little Zoom thing and it goes up. And the professor says, yes, Jim. Uh, and I said, okay, sir, what, what is it, like, I guess my question is, why does the author add just as he was? How else are you going to take Jesus into the boat other than as he is. That didn't make any sense to me. Why did the author do that? Perhaps we can look at 25 here and think the same thing. Why does the passage end with the clause, and he called his name Jesus? It seems like the story is done, but then we get one more little snippet, one more little addition. Well, for the sake of time, I'll I'll leave you in suspense about Mark 4.36. And we'll move on to Matthew 125, but please come and talk to me sometime. I learned some really cool things about that passage. Uh, Our scene is complete in 125a. Jesus is born. He is here. But 25b, as we just said, says, and he, that's Joseph, called his name Jesus. Perhaps this verse is here to highlight Joseph's obedience. It says previously that he's a just man. Maybe the Bible is just making reference to that, and I don't think there's anything Less than that here. Obviously, Joseph, everything we read about him seems that he is a just man. But I think if we just leave the application there, if we just leave that there, we miss a lot of what's going on. We miss so much of what is happening in our passage. Because by naming him, Joseph is completing the process of adopting this child as his own. That would have been the last stamp that this child is now Joseph's, just by giving him a name. This completes the covenant that God made with David, that the Messiah was going to come from the house and lineage of David, this king whose dominion was going to be forever and was not going to have an end. Not only do we see a completeness in the simple fact that Joseph names Jesus but the name which he gives him is paramount, this name, Jesus. Because in this time, uh, the name of the firstborn son had the intention of carrying on the family name. Most firstborns were named after their fathers. This is why the firstborn child often got a lion's share of the inheritance, all that kind of stuff. He was going to be responsible for carrying the family name on. If we remember the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke's gospel, 
we see that everybody is perplexed that Zechariah is not going to name him after himself. He's going to name him John. My, uh, I am James Frederick Knaus III. My dad is James Frederick Knaus II. And my son, the other little boy sitting uh, in the pew with Hannah, is James Frederick Knaus IV. There's something about carrying on this name. But Joseph doesn't do that. Part of it is because he's being obedient. That's, that's true. But also, this name is separating Jesus, this child, from simply being in Joseph's line, in Joseph's lineage, and it's establishing what he was coming to do. In giving him the name Jesus, we see that Joseph is separating him, saying this child has a further, more important and divine purpose in what he came to do. Indeed, this child would come to save his people from their sins. Now, the child born here, we know, he grows in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and with man. He lives his life free of sin. He goes to the cross and dies for the sins of his people. This is God's completed presence with us. He rises from the dead. He sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. And Jesus We see that God never leaves us nor forsakes us. Jesus made a promise at the end of Matthew's gospel. He says, I am with you always, uh, even to the end of the age, which is just a Greek idiom for forever. Sometimes your Bibles will actually translate it forever, that, that clause, that verse. The spirit that miraculously conceived him is now sent by him to dwell within those who would believe. Friend, if you're, if you're here in the audience this morning, you don't know this Christ, you don't know this Emmanuel, this God with us, I pray that today is the day of your repentance. Today is the day of your turn away from sin, and I pray that this is the day that you put your trust and faith in the perfect Christ that we have preached to you this morning, that we sing about this time of year so beautifully. Come up and find one of us here after the service. We'd be glad to talk to you about that. I'll be down here. Some others will be. Uh, That would be a wonderful conversation that we would love to have. But brothers and sisters uh, in in Heritage Bible Church, and if you're visiting with us today, uh, you as well, go ahead and read the stories. Worship in the songs. Drink hot chocolate. Go look at Christmas lights. uh, Do all the wonderful things that we love to do this time of year. But my prayer is that we would take the hope in the presence of God, that he sent us, God with us. This presence that is perfected by the way he does it, by the way he calls it and names it, and then by the way that he completes it. Let us remember that God, at this time of year, with this event, brought his perfect plan to save us from our sins by becoming God with us in the birth of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. You pray with me, please. Father, sometimes we read these things and and they're difficult to understand. Indeed, they're difficult to believe. God, that you would leave your throne in heaven, that you would come to us, not with pomp, not with circumstance, not with, uh, as we're about to sing, fanfare from above. You came as a humble little baby boy born to a poor Jewish family 
so that you could save your people from their sin. Father, we did not uh, treat your son the way that he should have been treated here. God, and we even fail to do so nowadays, being on this side of the cross in our infidelity to what you have called us to do. Father, we are sinners, but you have given us the perfect presence uh, with us. You have, you have given us God with us who saves us from our sins. And for this, Father, we could not even take eternity to adequately praise you for what you have done, for who your son is and what he came to do. We thank you for it. And we ask that you would accept the worship that we give here on this day and the reading of your word and, and all of this praise and glory we lift up to you as the best that we can do. We pray that the meditation, the words of our mouths, the meditation of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We give you the praise and the glory today. And it's in the name of our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.